So, I, you know, I get, obviously I'm wrapped up in technology and the art, all the production and all this stuff. And, but I guess it all comes back down to that. Like that, that's why I'm here. You know? <laughs> like we're here to help save lives. Welcome back to the Medical Illustration Podcast. This is your host, Paul Kelly. I'm a professional medical illustrator working in Toronto, Canada at TVA Surge, the Toronto Video Atlas of Surgery. My guest today is Michael Hickman, Senior Technical 3D Artist at Barrow Neurological Institute in Phoenix, Arizona. Michael is a whiz in all the technical aspects of high-end 3D production and an active contributor on the Association of Medical Illustrators Members Hub Forum, where he's posted several articles about emerging trends in the tech sector that will affect the future of the field of medical illustration. In this episode, we chat about some of these advances and workflows for high-end medical animation studios and 3D medical visualizers. The opinions expressed in this podcast are those of Michael and do not reflect those of his employer. Please enjoy this interview with Michael Hickman. I really would like to hear about your backstory. When did you first learn about medical illustration? Uh, when I applied for the job. <laughs> so, yeah, that was a summer internship. I just happened to walk into the art department during the middle of the summer and they had an internship posting there. My boss is Mark Shornack. Mark introduced me to everything about the field. I made a few mistakes early on, you know, trying to make things a little bit too realistic where uh, sometimes simple is better. Mm -hmm. Like I did this carotid artery animation and I was trying to make the person look realistic. So I do a facial scan. I was like scanning my skin textures, trying to get the face just looking realistic. And Mark was telling me, yeah, that's, that's probably too much. We need to kind of tone it down a little bit. A lot of lessons like that. So he, he really mentored me. Very cool. So yeah, I want to hear a little bit about the things you were doing before you, you got the job there, because it sounds like you have quite a bit of history in CG uh, and, and 3D. So where did you kind of learn all this stuff? I went to Arizona State. At the time, 3D was kind of segmented between high-end 3D and then regular 3D. And it just had to do with the price tag of the software. Maya was $16,000 at the time. Houdini was $20,000. Going through high school, I was always kind of plugged into some media stuff. I had some friends that were, you know, would geek out over computers. The backstory is I was heavy metal guitarist in a band and I you know, was doing album artwork. It'd be so cool if I could do this in 3D because I wasn't much of an artist in terms of like drawing, but I wanted to create something and sculpt something or whatever. I went into industrial design and then graphic design and then animation. I was taking CAD classes. Actually, I was the first to submit an animation portfolio to get into the animation program. Uh, and this is like pre-digital. So like, I remember asking my instructor, like, how do I, how do people usually submit their portfolios? And he said, well, you know, usually slides, like actual analog, <laughs> analog slides, like, but oh, wow. okay. But you know, I'm a, I'm a digital artist. Like, how, okay, I'll figure out how to get those printed off. And well, can I give you a CD with some animations? He's like, well, sometimes there's technical problems with getting them to play. You know, <laughs> <laughs> oh my God. What year was this? This was, well, this was like 1999 oh, you know, wow. like, okay. uh, or late 98, maybe. And that was back before video codecs. Like right now, your media player, just it just plays the video. You know, like back then you had to have the codec and, and the video player. There was always compatibility issues. So he didn't want me to give a CD and eventually said, well, how about VHS? So I, <laughs> I went out and just figured it out and <laughs> like how to get the animation. I bought an iOmega buzz drive and got this thing. I had no idea how to use After Effects, but I just learned it on the fly. <laughs> I wanted to animate the portfolio. I don't know. I just always like diving into something and just 
seeing it through. So going through that, did a bunch of projects. Later on, I got worked on with some grad students to work on a, it was a Times Square New York project that oh, okay. uh, one of the professors was working on. So I was involved with that. I think 12 people worked on it, but like everyone was like modeling different buildings. And I had a render farm at home. I had to learn how to do computer networking. I had four computers and they're all networked. And I just had to figure it all out on my own. And that's actually when I first worked at Barrow, I would take animations home and render them on my home computers because we didn't have the equipment yet. <laughs> Mm -hmm. Yeah, before we got full funding and everything. So, you yeah, know, I'm so glad I'm glad you mentioned this because I think one of the struggles that some of the folks I I know I feel this, which is that you know you see the artwork of all the up and coming folks and you get you know kind of like intimidated like oh my god oh, yeah. these, kids, these kids are just so good but yeah. I think there's a real advantage in being a little bit older and having seen all these progressive developments of the tech and seen the iterative design process, you know, going on all throughout the world, right? Because mm -hmm. like, I think back to when I was first learning computers and stuff. And I mean, I was working in MS-DOS back in right. the day, you know, oh, the, yeah. first, the first web uh, design class I took, we were learning HTML, JavaScript, CSS. And I still use that a little bit nowadays. Every once in a while, I have to like type out, type out a line of code or something. So I think we had actually a real advantage in that this stuff was getting rolled out at the same pace that we were learning it. Whereas nowadays there is just, it's almost overwhelming the amount of information, you know? Well, and back in the day, you know, like uh, you were limited by the technology much more so. And so when I first hired at Barrow, this is when SGI workstations were kind of sunsetting. The big twenty fifty thousand dollars machines were kind of on their way out that were running IRIX and Windows was taking over in terms of like doing 3D. 3D was kind of non-existent on the Mac for, I mean, there were like three or four programs available, you know, <laughs> like Maya wasn't available. So Windows was 32-bit and SGI machines were 64-bit. And the reason that was important was because how much memory you could address. You could have these huge files on an, an SGI system, but when you go to Windows, it would just crash. I specifically remember, and it has to do with because 32-bit Windows is a hybrid. It's got all the 16-bit legacy code also in there because mm -hmm. it has to support that. So it's not a full 32-bit. You say, oh, you can run four gigabytes of memory max. But no, actually, when you'd hit about 1.3 gigabytes, the program would crash. So if you're like loading like a frame sequence, you couldn't load a frame sequence that was too big or for too long, it would just crash. So a lot of the technology with like Maya, like back then, like NURBS was the way to do organic surfaces. Polygon modeling was just starting to kind of become a viable thing. Like 3D Studio was actually pretty ahead of the curve there. But like doing all the, the really detailed stuff that uh, usually involved NURBS. And so there was all these like habits of doing these lightweight kind of modeling things. Because now you can just like do whatever you want. And I see it happen with students sometimes where they work on a file and the file becomes too big to render. And even though the computer can handle it, there's something else that causes a problem downstream. But back then, like it was not even an option. You had to be really disciplined about working efficiently with lightweight stuff. So. Mm -hmm. um, yeah, no, it totally makes sense. And now we should also talk a little bit about Barrow, where you're working now out in Arizona there. Um, what was the history of this unit that you're a part of and how did it get started there? Neuroscience publications are a publishing department. We create books and media for journal articles and media presentations and web content and so forth. I can't remember the exact year. I think it was uh, mid-80s that the department was started. And the reason the department was started was so that we'd produce a publication ourselves, which is called the Barrow Quarterly. It was, I don't remember how many pages it was, like maybe 40 pages. And it would come out every quarter. You know, we, I think we did like 5,000 copies for each run and we just mailed them out. And now we're doing books regularly and we've kind of retired the quarterly several years ago. So, yeah, that's, that's really interesting because there are 
some overlaps uh, with my group uh, at TVA Surge. Uh, so the surgeons we work with there, Dr. Ema Gilvery, and when we had started, Dr. Paul Gregg. So Dr. Gregg is pretty well known in Canada as being one of the early guys to push transplant for, you know, like abdominal transplant, liver transplants. And Ian, Ian McGilvery, he's done some essentially using techniques that have been developed and utilized and shown to work quite well in transplantation to keep the liver tissue alive for as okay. long as possible. Yeah. And what he'll do is he uses those techniques in HPB surgery where they're resecting large tumors or, you know, cancer that's really invasive or difficult to manage. And he's using the liver transplant techniques to keep the liver alive so that they can operate longer and so that they have more time to, you know, essentially dissect all the branches and everything surrounding the tumor, then get it out and then kind of repair everything. Right. Yeah. That kind of reminds me of Dr. Spetzler, our previous director, to my knowledge. I mean, maybe I'm getting some of the details wrong. I think he was one of the people that innovated for like these super giant aneurysms. They basically cool and chill the body down. Mm -hmm. They put ice bags on you, they chill the body and they stop the heart so they could dissect the aneurysm out, stitch it back together, and then they start the heart and it's very successful. So things like that. We did a lot of animations on it way back when. That's awesome. Wow. That's really cool to be a part of something like that, right? And be documenting these changes. Now, when you started, you mentioned you were doing animations from the very beginning, right? Yeah, yeah. Okay. A lot of the work I'm seeing coming out these days is a lot of illustration work. Uh, in particular, uh, Peter Lawrence. I mean, his stuff oh, is yeah. gorgeous. I mean, just fantastic. So yeah. over, over time, was there a shift in the work that was being asked for or in how you guys wanted to present things or how your surgeons wanted to show things? Like how has your workflow kind of changed or developed over time? Uh, yeah, it depends on the need for, you know, journal publications or traditional like book content. Illustration is the backbone. Um, and it's illustration is generally faster to create a one-off illustration of something. Whereas like a 3D model, you got to model something first. If we don't have it, it takes longer to create. So the, the animations are mostly used for oftentimes presentations and actually a lot of stereo 3D presentations. That's a big deal with neurosurgery. You know, they always have stereo 3D projectors at some of the, the fancier conventions and things. Yeah, um, I've seen in a lot of the papers, they'll have those stereoscopic images with the red and blue, you know, like in the paper so that you can put on 3D glasses and see that because, yeah, the depth is depth is really important for that kind of surgery, right? Yeah, it's, it's a huge thing because with neurosurgery, you're just looking down this tunnel and it kind of flattens out. And it's like night and day, when, especially when you see neurosurgical video in stereo 3D, it's just a completely different experience almost. So we do stereo animations and like if we're doing a stereo production, the whole thing is stereo. Stereo is a difficult topic today because, I mean, anaglyph always works, you know, the red and blue glasses, but you can't even buy stereo TVs anymore. They're not sold. NVIDIA doesn't make their stereo vision glasses anymore. So you can't really buy the technology. Somewhere behind me, I've got a hologram display, but it only works with interactive stuff. So it's like generating 55 or 60 points of view. So you literally hook Unity up to it and it has to run kind of at the lower quality settings, but they're going to come out with it on the phone and it's going to use eye tracking to kind of figure out where your eyes are and just generate those two views. So it's like really optimized. They're making it thin. I think Sony and Apple are actually working on the technology right now. So. Wow, D dude, this is why. Okay, hold on. Sorry. So we have to back up just a little bit because I want to give the folks a little context. So when we were talking about stereo and stereo 3D, uh, one of the things you mentioned was like the NVIDIA glasses. So for, for folks who don't know, there are 
two sort of approaches to doing stereoscopic 3D. There's the active or the passive. And correct me if I'm using the language incorrectly here, but I think the passive is like when you go to the movie theater and they give you those cheap plastic glasses. And essentially they have, um, you know, these lines or what's the right term? Uh, Well, they're circular polarized. They're polarized. Thank you. Yeah. Yeah. They're they're not vertical and horizontal. You can rotate your head a little bit and it Mm -hmm. doesn't break the image. So, yeah, so the, the, the polarized glasses is kind of the easy way to do it. And what they're doing is they're sort of altering the image on the screen. It's a silver screen, so it's a reflective screen, and mm-hmm. ref- which maintains the polarization. So the projectors project through a filter that polarizes the image. It hits the reflective screen, and it maintains the polarization, and it gets back to your eyes. And your glasses are filtered with the same type of polarization to filter the other one out. Okay, gotcha. So, okay, and so oh, so and then the active—that's when they're flashing yeah. the, the the image. And so a lot of people were arguing that the active is better because then each image has like full resolution, and your brain is not really perceiving the the switching back and forth, but your eyes are catching it. Is that right? Or did I yeah, miss that? I I actually think the passive are better. <laughs> yeah. That's my opinion. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I've seen both. They both look good. In theory, the uh, passive—you can use any frame rate you want. <laughs> Okay. But, but the active, you're literally limited by the technology with how fast your display can you know, refresh. And, that sort right of and so now, why do you think this has not caught on? I mean, was it because there's too much for people to buy or like there's not enough media out there for people to make use of it? Like what? Because it's it was getting big in theaters. I thought for sure this was going to come out on everyone's home systems. What do you think yeah. happened there? Yeah, I, I think consumers don't want to wear glasses. <laughs> and it gives some people headaches or it can. Mm. That kind of hack is to get two glasses, break off one of them and kind of duct tape it. So you got <laughs> to kind of get two left eyes so you can see it in 2D. Yeah, so we've done that so on occasions. You know, Avatar came out and then the sequels did not come out. Mm. So that was supposed to keep it going, but it didn't. And then The Hobbit got bad reviews at the high frame rate in stereo. So Right. Well, yeah, I think there is a lot of value, though, in using it for our line of work. And it really makes sense what you're saying, that it's they're just kind of moving ahead to the next thing, which would be like holograms. Now, the technology you're using for that, you, you say this is all like through the phone. So, well, so, uh, I mean, the, the technology is not out yet, so there's, oh, okay. we can't really work with it. The, the hologram display that we have, I can't remember the name of the company. We did one where you had like the four different projections and you basically had like, it was almost like, I think it was a, like a script that basically just took whatever image you had and it projected it like onto four different views. And there was like, do you know what I'm talking about? It was like for a pyramid. You had like a screen above like a reflective pyramid and then the images were being like reflected off of the like the like clear glass of like a pyramid. Yeah, there's, there's a lot of different methods like that. The one that I have, it's a small, like nine inch display and it's like three inches thick. But the ones that they're working on for the phones are, it's a completely different type of technology. They're able to make it like a couple millimeters thick. You know, so as you move your head around, it looks like it's really there. It really legitimately looks like a hologram, but it has to be something that can virtually display several cameras at the same time. And so Unity is capable of that. There's, there's some other technology like Google's got uh, their light field scans. It's basically like voxels. So if they can just make a hologram big, then you can actually make it work in with a group, you know, like with a home audience or something. That's awesome. Man, yeah, you guys are on such cutting edge over there. The, the early projects you mentioned animations, what sort of led to this just constant like, like pushing of, you know, exploring different tech options? The neurosurgeons are always trying to one up each other. They're really competitive. 
the reason my boss got funding for my position was Dr. Spetzler had to have the latest thing, so he saw to it to get funding to bring me on and make animations. So I think they're always looking for something new. We push to get like a couple interactive developers here now. Sometimes it takes a long time to get funding and you have to make demos of stuff. Like some people can't see, they don't understand what you're talking about until you like show them. Right. So I wanted to make like an interactive neurosurgical app. So at one point, I, I don't know if anyone knows this, Maya is completely scriptable. Like everything in Maya is a script. And so you can modify it. I'm not a Unity programmer. I don't know Unity. I know Maya. So I actually modified the Maya interface, stripped it all down, streamlined some tools. So it would kind of behave the way I was envisioning an interactive neurosurgical app to work. So I'm clicking on buttons to like turn on the brain and then you know, I'm cutting through it and doing stuff to it and then turning stuff on and off transparent. When you, you sit down with a surgeon and you're working on an animation with them and they're just amazed by this technology and they're asking, hey, can I get a hold of this? I want to do this. And like some of them have actually tried learning 3D software and 3D software is really complicated. Obviously, you know, these are neurosurgeons, but the, the problem is they're busy. You know, they, they're much too busy to like learn all these intricacies with the software. So if yeah, we that is really the key, I think. And I think that really makes a strong case for just openly sharing you know, the, the process. That's something we've been pushing more. And I have to say that this is something that you're really kind of turning me around to when it comes to sharing assets is this idea of showing people what you're capable of and not being so attached to the income or, you know, whatever that you're, the benefits you're getting out of those assets you've built, but really selling people on what you're capable of doing for them. And the assets, for example, if we're talking models or illustrations, that's just, those are just demonstrations of what you're capable of. Right, exactly. Like we talked about, like, if the surgeon is able to make their own images themselves, why do they need us? You know, like they're going to come back and say, oh, it, this is great, but can it do this? You know, can you find a way to make it do that? They're going to want the next thing, you know? So hmm. providing the value and showing them what's possible, showing them that you're not stuck on doing one thing, that you're looking to the future to do the next thing, because they want to always be working on the next thing too. So. And any of us who are in this field and trying to keep pace with all of these technological changes, we know how much time you have to invest in doing all this research and reading and watching videos. What surgeon has time to do that? Yeah. You know? <laughs> You're right. You know, for, for those who are listening and wanting to get into the field, this is, this is an audience I really do want to speak to. What recommendations do you have for them to best prepare? Because there's so much to learn. What do you think are some really important things that they should start off focusing on? I haven't gone through one of the formal schools for medical illustration. So I would definitely say be looking at one of the schools that will get you towards where you're wanting to go. Obviously, art and a science background, you really need that. Medical illustrators usually have an art and a science background. I've got a little bit, I would probably say more of an art and a technology background. So just following what you're passionate about. But yeah, the art fundamentals are critical, how to communicate things visually. I think there's a lot of folks who are seeing so much success in the visual arts space, especially in like video games and movies. They're seeing that a lot of folks are jumping right in there, just starting to build stuff, and they haven't gone through that formal training uh, similar to yourself. And so a lot of people are sort of asking, like, do you really need to go to school for this stuff? So I'm curious, you know, from your point of view, I oh. mean, you do recommend the schools, but... Oh, yeah, def definitely. At Barrow, you know, we're an academic institute, so we're working on like the bleeding edge of surgery. Like we are making the reference material because it doesn't exist yet or because it's poor quality. Things like the basal cisterns and the basal cisterns are a difficult thing to understand. So it's a teamwork effort. The early half of my career, Mark Shornak was the instrumental person with me 
So everyone kind of holds down their corner of what they're good at. You know, so I work with our IT department. Working in a hospital, there's a lot of limitations with technology and what you're allowed to do and, you know, security and that sort of stuff. Um, yeah, you can't just like get whatever you want, and just start running it on your machine. You got to get permissions and all this stuff. So I interface with the IT team and translate that to Mark and Mark would talk with the surgeons and translate that to me. So when I would work with the surgeon on my own, one-on-one, I could produce something for them. It would just be a little bit more frustrating for them because they would have to kind of explain it to me because I, maybe I'm not as up to date on some of the things that they're talking about. But when you have someone, you've gone through the medical illustration program and you, you're really familiar with, you've got all those fundamentals down. It's, it's just like second nature. You just understand it. That's where the value comes in. You don't want to be not understanding. <laughs> you don't want to have them have to re-explain something, you know, right. because they have very limited time. So, yeah, yeah, yeah. We have, you know, a lot of those situations. I mean, I think it, it really kind of speaks to doing your due diligence on the research, right? And kind of like, you know, pre- preparing for those meetings, you know, reading up, right. your, especially if you're meeting with a new surgeon, looking up their papers, you know, check out their public, right. publications, read up what they've done, right? Mm-hmm. Yep, exactly. Yeah. Now, speaking of research, you've done tons of research into the tech space and the software applications that we're all using to produce our work. I saw you did a presentation at the AMI and you were talking about compositing workflows. And unfortunately, I missed that talk, but I I really want to check it out somewhere. I hope oh. someone has a recording of it. That one was, let's see, in 2016, I gave a talk on procedural shading. And then 2018, I gave a talk on compositing workflows. And I was talking about compositing in linear light space. Okay. Okay. and HDR. And recently I've been posting on AMI about the, the ACES workflows, which is sort of like the next step beyond linear workflow. And we should also mention for folks listening that ACES is referring, it's um, acronym for Academy Color Encoding System. Right. And that's important to take note of because the Academy of the letter A there is the Motion Film Academy. Like so this is the motion picture industry, their standard for right. color uh, color space that they're using in film. I'm actually going to be doing a, a webinar with AMI. I think it's going to release sometime in October or November. So that'll be coming out soon. But I, I try to do my best to explain the general concept on the AMI hub. I have the habit of making these lengthy posts with lots of I I love them, man. pictures. Yeah, thanks. <laughs> they're, they're like articles. I mean, this is really well-written stuff and you do a lot of research. You grab a bunch of images to help explain these things. I think it would definitely help folks to know a little bit about the background on this color space stuff because I'm becoming very interested in the ACEs. I switched over to linear a couple of years ago, which you've now pointed out is kind of out of date. What's the argument you make for other folks and why they should learn this stuff about color space? It just makes more accurate visualization stuff. Like I kind of say, like if you care about the colors you're making for your 3D render, you get more physically viable colors. Uh, the blending is more natural. Like when you do some overlays, like when you multiply a color over another, like I, I one of the examples I gave in my 2018 talk was I had a, a spinal column saying, what if you wanted to tint the spinal cord green? When you do it in the traditional sRGB mode, it just looks like this searing green all the way through. It's like this, it looks artificial against a linear composited one where the blending is just much more subtle. Usually this applies more to 3D render than 2D illustration. You can do it in Photoshop. You can change Photoshop to be linear, 
but like Adobe's got a problem where it's either all or nothing. It's like a permanent change. So like all your files, even the, your past files, the colors will look different and that's not good. They don't save it with the file. It's just a permanent Photoshop change. Well, I had a question for you because I've been trying to read into this stuff and come out with ways to sort of explain it, maybe some analogies. And one analogy I was thinking of, and I want you to let me know if this is totally off target or not, but one analogy I was trying to think of was maybe comparing this to RGB versus CMYK and the available colors you have. So if you're making something for print, you have to convert that file into CMYK color space. Right. The available colors there are based on what a physical printer can actually spit out. And so when you mix those, you know, magenta, yellow, and cyan inks, there's some colors you can't mix, like really bright greens, for example. Like right. a, you, you can't mix that color with those inks. But if you're only displaying this image on a screen, a monitor, then you have access to a whole different library of colors, which is RGB. So RGB colors for medical illustration work, we've always had to convert what we're seeing on our monitor into CMYK for print. But now when we're moving into video, instead of constricting that available color space, we're actually expanding it. And that I think is sort of like the way to kind of maybe explain it is that going from RGB or sRGB to, to linear, you're opening up the available colors you have. And then when you go from linear to aces, you've further expanded the available colors. Is that? Yeah, it, that's actually a really good way to think about it. The only caveat is HDR, you know, high dynamic range, like colors that can get really bright. It always confuses people sometimes when I say brighter than white, you know, like mm -hmm. how can a color be brighter than white? But it's more intense, like the brightness of the sun. When you go out outside, you got to squint your eyes. Linear itself is not a wider color gamut. Mm -hmm. It's just a mathematically accurate interpretation of the colors. ASUS actually is expanding the gamut. It builds HDR as one of the founding blocks of the color space. Like sRGB, back in the day, HDR didn't exist. And they kind of shoehorned HDR on top. But now that we've got all that technology, they kind of said, okay, we know these multiple exposure levels exist. They've remapped all the colors based on that. And that's what ASUS is. And so, okay. so what it will do is it saves you time because you have fewer knobs to dial. So you're not constantly adjusting the highlights. So uh, ASUS colors just look more natural. Another maybe analogy or kind of example of how to wrap one's head around this stuff is I was trying to think about shooting in raw, you know, camera raw. Yeah. And what you can do is, you know, in post, if you go into a Adobe Lightroom or a Photoshop, you can tweak the exposure of that image and you might have a really dark shadow somewhere in that image. And if you have shot in raw, you can bring up the exposure of the image and you will start to see detail in that shadow crop up. And likewise, when you go in the opposite direction, if you have a blown out highlight, this huge patch of white on the image, and then you pull the exposure down when you've shot it in raw, you will all of a sudden start to see details creeping back in. So I think that's kind of like one thing to keep in mind when we're talking about brighter than white or darker than black. It's there's information that's still being stored in parts of the image that otherwise look like they've been blown out or crushed. Right. And camera raw is a linear format. I mean, that is one of the definitions of it. So the colors always blend accurately and then it's translating it so that it looks correct on our monitors. But yeah, camera raw and like video raw footage and rendering CG HDR files, it's kind of at its heart, all the same thing. So And what really piqued my interest here, and you, you started to touch on this a little bit when you were talking about how 
it's not just the available colors. It's also kind of how they're being interpreted by the software and how the software is, is working, especially when it comes to blending modes. So okay. when you set, you know, multiply or add color dodge, all that stuff on the, the different components in a composite, the interpret, the way that that math works is different when you're working in different color space, right? Yeah, some of your go-to kind of settings that you might use, you might have to use them a little bit different. Like if you make a, a layer as a soft light layer, you maybe have to turn it down a little bit. Things can be a little bit more intense when you're working in linear or ACES. So you just have to make some adjustments. And once you get used to that, it's like riding a bike. You just know how to do it. One of the problems with working in linear right now or ASUS is that certain plugins will sometimes not function correctly. Like the plugins that have their own user interface that pops up. So the preview might not show up correctly because their preview window doesn't recognize what linear or ASUS is. So sometimes you have to kind of do a little shoehorn thing so that it shows up correctly in the preview. And so you have to do a color profile effect and change it to sRGB. I think it's under the utility section in After Effects. So there's some little hiccups like that. It's a pain in the butt right now with Adobe software. You have to completely disable color management. You have to turn everything off and go into manual mode. So now you have to manually set every single footage. You have to be aware of what it is, set it, and then remember to set it. And if you send that file to someone else, if they haven't disabled everything else the same exact way, it's not going to show up. So it's a huge problem with Adobe right now. But the rest of the industry has adopted it. We're using Blackmagic Fusion for our main heavy compositing. And then we move into After Effects for like post-editing. Fusion is really good with working with ACES. So. Mm -hmm. Well, let me ask you this because, so we've been using EXRs for our render sequence files for a, a while now. And EXR is amazing because they are relatively small files for the amount of information stored in them. Right. Uh, and you have, they're multi-pass files. So all your render passes are saved in one file. Now, when I rendered these out of Cinema 4D, I noticed that like the color space setting just grays out and just defaults to linear. So is, are EXRs just like only linear? That's their default. Yeah, they are linear. It's possible to have an sRGB EXR, and actually at Barrow, we do that. So when we render our final images, it's in an sRGB color space. And this is so that anyone on the team can open that file up in Photoshop and it will look correct. Because otherwise it's in linear, it's going to be all washed out. But yeah, EXR is linear by default. That's the assumed color space. Just like JPEG, PNG, sRGB is considered the default color space for those. Right on. And for folks who are curious about testing this out, um, I think there is a plugin you have to get for Photoshop to open an EXR, but I'm pretty sure it's free. Is that right? Or do they, do well, the CC just open them right out of the gate? Photoshop will open a regular EXR. If you need to open a multi-pass EXR, you need that plugin. EXR IO or something like that. Yeah, that sounds about yeah. right. It's a great plugin. EXR can do so many different things. Like it can render out with what are called pyramid files, which are optimized for texture maps. So anyway, I'm getting off subject, but yeah. Oh, whoa, I got to look into this. I didn't know about these. Well, it depends on your render engine, what it's optimized for. So like, I think you're using Arnold. I think that they've got their own, I think a TX file format that they prefer. We are using V-Ray and their most optimized file format is EXR. So Pyramid EXR, it's what's called a MIP map. So it does several smaller resolutions of the same file. It makes the file bigger, but what it allows you to do is, so if an object is way off in the distance in your 3D scene, it doesn't need to load the entire full res file, you know, oh, for cool. that, so for that texture So kind of like LODs for texture maps? Yeah, it's like that, but but it's like smart about it. it it's able to kind of crossfade. It, it somehow, it, it actually reduces artifacts and it lowers memory consumption. It's it's just a good thing all around. But, oh, um, that's cool. Uh, to my knowledge, I think TX does something similar to that for Arnold's format. Okay. Oh, wow. Oh, that's really cool. Yeah, it was uh, EXRIO. Yeah, that plugged yeah. 
Man, I'm dying to hear more about the pipeline that you guys have set up out at Barrow. What are some of the major changes you've made to your production pipeline that have had a lasting impact on your department? You know, I was the only animator for several years. I think it was like almost like 14 years that I was the only 3D artist on the team. So everything was always in my head. And so that's easy when you get to manage everything yourself. You know exactly where everything is. But as soon as you hire someone else, now how are they going to know where everything is? For me, I felt like the simplest solution was to like, well, I'm just going to learn how to script. So I'm going to make a user interface in Maya so that stuff shows up so people can get to different assets. At the time, like I had a huge shader library of all sorts of stuff. Were these the, you sent me some screenshots um, that had kind of like a UI. Was that all stuff you built? Like you built that whole oh, UI system? Yeah, the, so those interfaces are ours that we built. And so those are tools that help streamline just production stuff, like do things that we commonly do all the time, get it done by pressing a button instead of having to go through five buttons, especially when it's things that involve multiple objects, because like Maya, not every tool will work with multiple objects. So with scripting, you can make that possible. So just lots of things like that. The thing that I'm the most proud of right now is like a button that you press and it will like automatically convert everything to a native V-Ray file and send each layer over to our render manager. And if anyone doesn't know, if, when you're using a standalone render engine, you got your plugin that works in your 3D software and then you've got your standalone render engine. The standalone is like the native render engine. It just like it immediately starts rendering. There's no lag. It doesn't have to translate anything. If you export something into that format, it's just ready to go. And that's how all the big studios do it. So it's much faster. Sometimes it's, you know, it's like five times faster. So like this one button automatically does that. And it used to be that you'd have to manually convert each file using like command line and script. Right. So just making things available so that people can produce work faster. We've got a database model so you can import stuff. Our illustrators use that stuff all the time where they import anatomy models and then they're, they're working with it. So Yeah, no, that makes sense. Now, are these standalone renders, they're just, they're kind of like uh, available for anyone, right? Like you just have to kind of go through the, the steps of setting it up? Yeah, I think most render engines have a, a standalone version and then they have a way to export your 3D file from your Cinema 4D or Maya or 3D Studio from that format into the native rendering format and then immediately starts rendering. Whereas the other times it has to like actually convert stuff and there's a bit of a lag. It uses more memory because it actually loads your 3D file twice. Oh, interesting. It's just much more efficient. And so yeah. and it takes a long time to load up memory. So if you have a really tiny render, Sometimes the overhead of like translating the file is really huge. So like, for instance, if you have a huge file with lots of layers and lots of big geometry, but one of these layers, you just need some little tiny thing render. And you got to load this huge file just to render this tiny little render layer. But if you export it in advance, it is just a tiny little file. You know? So there's potentially some big savings there. So. Wow. Where did you pick up all this stuff, man, about, you know, the most efficient way to do everything? <laughs> uh, a lot of reading, I guess. I, I really try to read like Seagraph white papers and things like that. Yeah, there's there's a lot of websites, but you know, I've been doing this for like over 20 years. <laughs> it just adds up, I guess. Right on. You now you've also mentioned Blackmagic Fusion, and there is a fusion component of DaVinci Resolve, which is free. Mm -hmm. I yep. think Blackmagic's pricing for both yep. like the full version of DaVinci and Fusion is super yeah. reasonable. But just the fact that so much of it is free and available right off the bat, there's no reason not to jump in there. So I've started playing around a little bit with Fusion and the node-based compositing. Totally down with it. I can totally see doing more of this in the future. I, I really like what I'm, what I'm experiencing. And we've also been doing more and more video editing with DaVinci. Now, I'm curious, what are some of the benefits of using Fusion and why should medical illustrators make this switch? 
So my opinion, you should not be using Photoshop for 3D renders. It's just not the right medium. Like if you need to actually re-render something and like change the camera view, it's kind of a pain in the butt to like swap out all your layers versus just reload the layers. You can do everything in After Effects. After Effects is really good for, in my opinion, like simpler composites. So if you're doing a really complicated 3D render with lots of layers and each layer has like different passes and things going on, after Effects has pre-comps, so you make lots of pre-comps, and eventually you get to the point where you have lots of pre-comps, and pre-comps get harder to manage. Like, I've got files that have, like, 25, 30 pre-comps almost, yep. you know, and, and you're like, and you got to name them all meticulously and keep track of what's in what. Where it becomes a problem is when you need certain attributes from something that's tucked away inside of a pre-comp to talk to something that's outside of the pre-comp. And you can do this with an expression. So if you hold the Alt key and press on the little stopwatch, you can like use the pick whip tool to like actually connect one attribute to another so it's linked. And it's kind of a pain in the butt in After Effects because how do you pick whip something that's inside of another pre-comp? You gotta like redo your window layout so that they're right next yeah. to each other. Then you can yeah. pick whip to the side, but that creates an expression. You know, I don't know if After Effects has fixed this, but for the longest time it was a bug where if you like renamed your pre-comp or pre-comped your pre-comp, it would break that expression because otherwise you're going to hand keyframe everything because maybe you're fading something on and it needs to fade on inside of that pre-comp and you have something outside of the pre-comp that's got to fade on. So you got to like match those keyframes up by hand. And as you get into more complicated comps, it just pulls your hair out. Like you just, Oh yeah. Yeah. I've got lots of files where I was just copying and pasting lots of keyframes between different pre-comps or different layers and things trying to keep it all straight. And then there's always like that one keyframe you miss <laughs> and then, Infusion, you know, it's a node-based compositing workflow. So you can see the blueprint of what's going on. It's kind of like if you were to take your After Effects file that has like your 30 pre-comps and just flatten it all out into nodes. So you can like just see a blueprint of how everything connects to everything. You can do what's called instancing. So you can like instance a node, so you can copy and paste a node. You can also take one attribute and connect it to another attribute on another node or you can paste an instance of that node and then take certain attributes and de-instance those attributes. It just gives you a really granular control. And you can actually see this relationship in the node editor. It will draw like a green line saying this node is instanced to that node. It drives me nuts when I open up even my old After Effects files where I'm like, what did I do? You know, and I have to like reverse engineer what I did. And it takes me like 10 minutes to kind of just figure out what's going on in this file. So with Fusion, it's pretty evident. Like you kind of have to find the starting place, you know, like where's the first node in this comp? You just trace the node network back to its root. Go, okay, it's starting here and then it ends here. So it always ends with a saver node. And that, is that where you like set the file format? Yeah, so that's where you set the directory you're going to render your file to, your file format. And so it always ends with a saver node. And so I think they're really neat looking, all these different node networks that you see, because each comp is a completely different thing. I feel like they're, I almost want to get like tattoos or something. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, no, they are really cool. I, I really enjoy the node-based compositing workflow as well as like the node-based shader building. So I know uh, newer versions of C4D, I think I've started bringing in like node-based shaders, but they've been in Maya forever. Yeah. Blender has them as well. So once you get used to it, you feel the power of it and being able to see everything at once. I think that's one of the, the great benefits is like you can visually see all the components laid out in front of you. Just like you say, it's like a blueprint, right? As opposed to going through like each of these like, you know, tabs and, you know, you go into one and it hides the other ones. And yep. you know, like if I, let's say I have like a procedural noise that I want to use for my bump, but then I also want to use that for in the color channel so that the, like, you know, the crevices and, and divots have the same color as the noise where it's like dipping down. 
then I've got to like copy and paste that procedural noise to each of those. Whereas if it's node based, then I just connect that noise to each node, right? Yep. Like, yep. It all it all converges to that one thing. So you have one controlling them all, yeah. and that actually makes it simpler. Totally. And and uh, way easier if you want to like go back and make a change. If I want to change the scale or the octaves of that noise, now I don't have to do it on two different you know noises like in two different places, right? I just do it on the one that's connected. So right. yeah, it makes a lot a, a lot of sense to do it that way. Now, if we're talking about node-based compositing, I have to ask you thoughts are on Nuke. So I, I've always lusted over Nuke. Um, <laughs> it, it, it's, its problem is it's just way too expensive for you know medical illustration animation kind of work. Nuke is amazing. Uh, that that is the industry standard for film for compositing, and it can do anything. I was really interested in Nuke, especially for a deep compositing, which is like depth-based compositing. So that would allow you to do it just opens a, a door on a whole bunch of new things. So I kind like, of thinking uh, 3D cameras that record like depth information with the with the footage is uh, so certain render engines, uh, probably like a third of them, all the major ones support deep rendering. So it, it has to be with an EXR file. Okay. Uh, but what it does is it's, it renders depth information. So it's the idea that it renders more than what you can see. And then like if you have something that is behind something else, like if you have a branch, like an artery branch that's in the foreground. And mm -hmm. so that's blurred. And because right. you're focusing on something that's further in the background, if you didn't render with an in-camera depth of field blur, you don't get to see what's behind that object. Because when you render it in-camera depth of field, it blurs it. Like, it gets to see through that object. When you render in deep, it renders stuff that's behind objects that you don't actually see. And then when you do a depth of field blur, it knows what the colors are behind that object. So if you blur the foreground object, now it can see through it. Oh, whoa. Because right now, if you were to do it in post without that technology, you will have some kind of weird edge artifacts or because you don't have the information. You don't know what's right. behind the object. The downside is the file, the EXRs are like 10 times bigger. <laughs> so I would imagine uh, so. Yeah, that makes sense. <laughs> and, the, and, the, and the renders are about 20% longer. So Oh, yikes, yikes, yikes. <laughs> Yeah, so it's definitely not for everyone. But After Effects and Fusion have pretty much said they're not really going to ever support that. So Yeah, I wanted to ask you about that Frischluft depth of field plugin because you had you talked about this before. And when I first started using this, I had to kind of jump through th some hoops to get those like weird halos off of the edges of stuff. Mm -hmm. what, what is your feeling about doing depth of field? Because that does come up quite a bit in medical illustration work. What is your recommendations for the best way to, to do that in 3D rendering? Yeah, the whole thing is you have to manage your depth of field. And if you just use a straight up depth pass, you'll get some edge artifacts that you have to manage sometime. Yeah. The simplest and the generally the highest quality is to do it in camera, which you have to be very meticulous about where you put your focal plane and setting. So that's one of the things like I have our camera rig set up for it. So you can like turn a focal plane on and off and it's already kind of rigged into the camera so you can see what's in focus. And I've got a little heads up display that shows like two circles. When the circles converge, they're in focus, but when it's a lot of blur, they'll diverge. Anyway, so people can see how much blur you're gonna have. And post, as you do higher blur levels of depth of field, blur will only go out so far. It'll be like kind of matted to your alpha channel. And because otherwise the blur will get cut off. So the min-max filter, what it does is it takes that depth color value and just expands it. Mm. And so when you get into higher blur values, you kind of need to do that. 
So in After Effects, if you were to do this, you'd have to do lots of stuff within a pre-comp. After Effects isn't good at saving a setting like that because After Effects only lets you save effects presets. It doesn't let you save a layer setup, like what's pre-comped. Fusion does, like it's all just nodes. So you can actually save a whole node network and then drop it in, just plug your stuff in and there's your depth of field with a few clicks. Fusion actually has some pretty good tools for how to handle managing those edges. There's a node called Erode Dilate, which kind of expands, but it also softens in kind of a more natural way. And the min-max filter. And also when you're working with motion blur, you have to motion blur your depth pass. You have to have your entire depth pass motion blurred so it respects that motion blur. Right. right. So the simplest thing is just to do it in camera, <laughs> but that'll increase your render times like 20% or maybe 10% or something. How do you pronounce that plugin? for Fish loop? Oh, fish loop. Yeah. Fish loop. Yeah. I, oh, gosh. I know that gets everyone, man. <laughs> yeah. I, I don't know if performance ever got better. I, I know it used to be single-threaded, so that was one of my complaints about it earlier on was it was really slow, but I, I think it's gotten faster. I want to pivot a little bit and talk about some of the other tech stuff because you've been talking a lot about USD file format. And oh, yeah. So when we're talking about the, the 3D scene files that we're working with here, USD is a new file format which I want you to sort of explain, but it's, it's basically become, it's a newer file format that is quickly becoming the industry standard. Can you tell us why? Sorry, I should mention uh, USD stands for Universal Scene Description. Is that right? Uh -huh. Right, yeah. So if anyone's ever worked with Alembic cache files, so if you've done some particles or you've done like a really fancy fluid simulation effect and it's really slow, too slow to actually scrub the timeline, you usually bake that out into like a cache file, which streams frame by frame so you can actually play back fast. Problem with Alembic is it's just geometry. It doesn't respect shader assignments or material assignments or anything else. It's just geometry. What USD is, is it's like, it is a caching format. So it's like, I think it's faster than Alembic potentially, but it can do everything. It can do material assignments. It can do lighting, basic rigging. So it's actually, it's kind of like what FBX plus Alembic, so like FBX is a, a really good universal format, but it's not a cache format. It's just a geometry rigging format. So you usually use that to get something into like, say, Unity or translating an object from one software to another software. And USD is sort of like the next evolution of that because it will do everything that FBX can do. Plus it has a, a layering system. So if you make edits, it basically can track those edit changes. So you can kind of select what version of it you want. So I've dealt with this with our material library. Like say uh, you've got a titanium shader. You've got this metal shader for your instrumentation. You've got all these different shades of titanium, but really it's just one material. Like they all kind of share the same material. I want to kind of have it set up. So if I make one change to one of them that they all kind of represent that, I don't have to go to each and every one and make the change. What USD allows you to do, it's hierarchical. So you can have one material and then you can have the purple version, the gold version, the, you know, the blue version of that material. It all goes back to that root material. So if you make a change to the root layer, it will cascade to those other ones. So it has a lot of flexibility. But the main thing is, is that it's universal. So if you're working in Cinema 4D and you export your entire scene as a USD format, someone that's using Maya or 3D Studio can open it up and it will do the exact same thing. It'll render the same way. It'll look the same way the rigging will work the same way i'm a little fuzzy on how it works with translation from one package to another because it's a little bit wild west right now because the only companies that have really adopted it formally are maya and houdini and blenders can import i can't remember yeah i think yeah i think you're right yeah it, it can either import or export but, only but it can't do the other 
Yeah. And so this also ties into render engines because I was talking about standalone render engines, which use their own proprietary format. A lot of the render engines are going to natively be able to render a USD file. So if you make a file in Cinema 4D, you export it as a USD file, you can then import that to any 3D package into any render engine, and it'll just render exactly how you set it up. But the other thing that's, and this is the big kind of workflow change, is like, how do you work with a group project? Because right now, that's, this is like saying, well, I can like, export my file, send it over to my friend, and then they're working at it. And then when they work on it, they export it and send it back to me. That's not how you actually want to work with USD. The way that you would ideally work with it is have it run off of a server. So it's like, what happens if you open the same file at the same time with two different people? With right. USD, it's not dangerous like that. So what it is, is like person one is working on that file and they make a change. And then person two, when that change is made, they can like manually update it or just automatically show you those changes that the first person just made. So if you're working on the same file at the same time, and meanwhile, to my knowledge, it's capable of recording those changes. It's like a layer. So you can kind of step back in time and switch it back to that previous version. So Google Docs on steroids. Yeah, it's kind of like putting all that into one format. It's amazing. Yeah, the idea of because that's one of the issues that does come up with production as far as taking up time or you know things dragging out is you've got to wait for somebody to finish their part of the pipeline, right, before you can mm -hmm. jump onto the next. And if everybody's working on the same file simultaneously, then yeah, that's like max efficiency there, man. That's amazing. Yeah. So if you have different tasks assigned, you know, someone's working on material, someone's working on animation, someone's working on sculpting and modeling. So I think ZBrush will eventually follow suit and you'll be able to import and export USD from ZBrush directly. So you can have someone working on the file in ZBrush, sculpting some details in. As long as you're not overlapping tasks, you won't run into problems. USD solves all that. That's amazing. That is so cool. Yeah, I, I can't wait for these kinds of things to to come into fruition more and more in our field. And it also speaks to, you know, some someone like yourself who has this expertise, opening up new opportunities for other people to join in the field and, and new positions, new job descriptions. There was a great presentation that uh, Shizuka Aoki did at our recent annual event, the BMC Uncon. So every year we have like a little informal get together and people just talk about kind of like whatever they want to, right? It's like and people have even talked about vacations they've gone on and like they did, you know, plein air paintings while they were on vacation, you know, but it's just fun stuff. And Shizuka was presenting on these different job descriptions that she saw emerging both in her company, but also in the field in general. And I think bringing in more people as like technical directors. Yeah, you know, like how, what is your official job description at Barrow? I'd have to read the actual thing, but my <laughs> title is Senior Technical 3D Artist. I was a medical animator for like 20 years, roughly. So my job role is making sure the infrastructure is in place, like the computers are working. Like if someone's got a computer problem, yeah, I, I help them solve it, but also just what's wrong with the file. So if someone runs into a roadblock, they'll hand me the file and I'll, I'll figure it out. We have a local render farm, so I keep that stuff running. I'm always looking at the technology stuff. That's actually part of my job description is actively checking out new technology. Like when you see like those technology adoption option curves. It looks like an S curve. I'm trying to get as far left as possible. I want to see as far out into the future as I can, kind of pointing like, hey, we need to look at this and go in that direction. And so, awesome, man, yeah, you need people to do that for sure. Part of it, I think, is just some experience. You know, I've seen a lot of technologies come and go. I jump in and help with deadlines. So 
a big thing is like, how do we eliminate crunch? You know, how do we do our best to eliminate people working overtime? Because that's something you, you don't want. Like, I want Barrow to be one of the best places you can work in the industry. Like everyone should have that goal, right? So, uh, and, and part of that is finding ways to work smarter. So I'm, I'm basically like the backup. You know, if a project looks like it's going to run into problems, it can happen in all different ways. Like you can be working with a contractor who doesn't get the file back to you until late. So I'll get pulled in to kind of help with that so that the other people don't have to put extra time in. Because otherwise, I've got my own set of stuff that I'm working on. I'm, I'm working with IT a lot. I'm working on, like right now, I'm doing IT certifications. I've got all these computers that run on the hospital network. So I have to know security stuff and, and be compliant with them. And lots of handshakes that go on behind the scenes to make stuff work. And I'm also working on like the Maya tools and just general workflow improvements. But on a per project basis, if a project kind of gets a little bit off track, I'm the backup. I come in and I assist, you know, so usually I'm not as good with like the scientific aspect of things, but I'll help with compositing or help make sure something renders faster or, or just to help suggest ideas to get something done faster. I'll just handle the technical aspect of it. That's, that's amazing, man. That's such a cool job. You know, you, now you bring up speed. I think this is something everyone in the field is always concerned with. Uh, one of the questions I have for you, because I'm always kind of wondering this myself, you know, when I'm working and sometimes it, I feel like I'm, you know, too slow and I'm, you know, taking forever. How do you know when something's taking too long? Yeah, no, that's, that's a good question. I always try to have like a plan A, B, C, D, and you just work through your plans. Something I see people do a lot is they try to use the most complicated tool to do a simple thing. Like reaching for simulation stuff should probably be the last resort. If you need to animate a thousand of something, yeah, maybe you should simulate it and control it with some scripts and some expressions or a complicated node network. But if it's just like 50 objects that need to just translate and rotate, just just do that. That doesn't sound as fancy as like doing it a really complicated way, but it's more predictable. It'll render faster usually. It doesn't need to be simulated first and then cached out and all this other extra stuff on the back end that you gotta do with caching. I guess in my opinion is if it takes more than a couple of days and you're still kind of in the same position that you were, you probably need to like, if I were to have done this a different way, would I be in a better position? I don't know. It's, it, it depends on the problem. That sounds like a great way to self-evaluate is to kind of stop and see where you're at, Look at how much time you put in and ask yourself, if I started from scratch, if I started at the very beginning, would I have done the same steps? Like the steps that I just took, do I feel like they were worthwhile? And do I, am I where I want to be now? Yeah. Mm -hmm. That sounds really good, man. I, I like that. I'm going to use that actually. <laughs> yeah. Like some other things, and I've got a friend who works in construction and they use a formula for project estimation for uh, building construction projects. And it's like, take your worst case estimate, take your best case estimate, and then take what you think it will take and, and multiply that by four, add those together, and then divide it all by six. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, the, uh, the technique I used on a recent case I had that was like an insane deadline, I looked at my like most re recent cases I had done, and I divided all the tasks up into like, I think it was like four main categories. And then I looked at like, well, what is the percentage of each of these categories? And then I took my available time and I divided up my available time by the percentage of each like major chunk of the workflow. And I said, okay, well then that's how many hours I should devote or expect to devote to each of those chunks. That is, that's kind of how I did it, which sounds similar to, to what your friend has. Yeah. But yeah, maybe his is a little bit more complicated. <laughs> <laughs> but it sounds like he's taking into consideration like, you know, additional time that you don't account for at the outset, right? Yeah, just accounting for the, your best and worst case scenarios and then just like heavily weighting it towards what you think it will do. Mm -hmm. 
Now, you because you mentioned before when we you know we've been chatting over email and you've talked a lot about these insane deadlines that you guys sometimes come up against. And I'm just blown away, man, by what you guys have been able to accomplish on these like crazy short deadlines. So, I mean, that that is something I think all medical illustrators face and, you know, have to become accustomed to is the last minute changes or the last minute requests. So what advice do you have for for anything that's like a last minute kind of rush job? So having a database of knowing where stuff is and having it like really thoroughly findable so you can get to it quick is what allows you to work faster. Sometimes we have to produce an animation in three hours. We're in a hospital and sometimes there's an emergency case and it's someone famous and then there's a huge press event. So they want to get something on the six o'clock news. And so we get the scan data at like two o'clock and we have until five o'clock to submit it to the news station. But also just last minute things like a, a doctor giving a presentation and say, I need stereo 3D animation for tomorrow. So after you've been through a few of those projects, there's got to be a better way to do this. How do we keep everything as ready to go as much as possible? And so I'm a big believer in using procedural shaders versus like hand painting on a model. Oftentimes we don't even do textures. We just keep it simple, basic shading. Our shading material is like a little meter that shows like how fast this material will render. It's like a scale of like one to 10. Like if you're in a hurry and you don't want to like fiddle with doing all these test renders. So whatever you can do to save steps, that's kind of like where a lot of my tools come into play. But my tools aren't necessarily doing anything fancy on a lot of it. It's just streamlines things, I guess. In our downtime, we're learning new software, we're finessing assets, and we're making things more findable, we're keeping everything very organized, and yeah, just kind of keeping a database of stuff. Yeah, absolutely. That is definitely something we've, you know, been trying to integrate at TVA Surge. We've had, actually, I think for a couple of years now, we've, you know, we've had a shader library. We definitely have a whole slew of, of stock models, which uh, we definitely are going to have to talk a bit about. So recently on the AMI Hub, uh, you, you put out this post, which I think sparked a lot of great discussion. I had some some thoughts to share as well, but I think it's a very great exchange. You're sort of proposing the idea of like, you know, why don't we medical illustrators work together, collaborate on building a model archive of anatomically accurate, you know, medical models. So why don't you share some of your thoughts on this? In general, we're all kind of working on the same things. You know, we're working on usually like anatomy. I mean, some of us are working on different anatomy, but usually mostly human anatomy, if not animal anatomy, or maybe insect or molecular. You know, molecular's had the protein database. And that's that's just been huge. PDB.org, right? Yeah. So like in Hollywood, all the studios have huge model libraries. And when they do pre-visualization of stuff, because they, they oftentimes don't do storyboards, they're, they're working with models and they put placeholders of stuff in there. You know, they, they know a car needs to be here, a building needs to be here, and they'll swap the stuff out later when they actually model the real thing. But they're blocking all the shots out. The director's looking at them, they're making changes. If you don't have a model, yeah, you need to draw it. <laughs> you need to get something on there to show what people are going to be working on and get like the, the client to approve it. Yeah, but like if we're all working on the same models, I guess part of why I'm a big believer in procedural shaders, materials and textures is because it's additive and you can keep making it better over time. You don't have to redo it because if you're hand painting a texture on a specific model, what if your model changes? What if you get a right. whole different patient, you get a whole different animal, you get a whole different model, you know, you need to apply. It's, it's tied to UVs, so the UVs yeah. have to match, yeah. Yeah, so anytime you can set up a workflow to kind of be based on something that you can reuse where you can build it up over time, that's what I think helps. Substance Designer is the industry standard for procedural shading. It's universal between all the different render engines and 3D software plugins. 
like Cinema 4D has got some really great procedural shaders, but they are specifically for Cinema 4D. That was the problem. I developed all this stuff with Memory and I had to just shelve it, you know, when we yeah. moved on to V-Ray. Anyway, anytime you can work on a, a platform or a method where you can build it up over time, that's what I think helps. And so if we collectively could work on models, if someone can improve on it, then we all have access to that improvement. It's like the open source movement like Linux. All the Linux developers are working on different little components of Linux and collectively is getting better. And everyone that uses it gets the benefits from it. We could do it ourselves. Like someone could just create a website and just, hey, send me your models and I'll put up on this website and like open source for everyone. That could be done. Potential problem with that is like, what if someone uploaded a, a commercial model and they didn't realize it was commercial and then there's cease and desist letters and lots of like, you can get liability insurance and kind of protect you as an individual from, you know. It's like an LLC or something, right? Yeah. There's gotta be a legal structure behind it. and. Yeah, it would it'd be a considerable amount of work. Obviously, setting up a database and a lot of volunteer work would have to go into like categorizing everything. You know, I, I really think probably the, the NIH is maybe the best. They've already got all that stuff figured out. It does make sense for, you know, models that are just sort of like annoying to have to like remodel from scratch or reuse. And especially stuff like retractors for surgical, you know, yeah. visualizations. Like, come on, you're not going to remodel a retractor every single time. Forget that. And what's the harm in like just putting that out there for free for other people to use? Like if you're getting minimal use out of it and it's not a critical element to the story, it's just sort of like a nice to have, then, you know, why not share that stuff? And I think putting things out there for folks to use, there is this culture online in uh, a lot of the digital art communities of just openly sharing stuff. And I think that is something that maybe medical illustrators could get in, into a little bit more in the, in the mentality. But I totally understand why there's reservations. And, and part of it is just this legacy of being taken advantage of. And there's just so much of what folks have seen happen to their work be, you know, misappropriated or used without permission. And, you know, they'll go to court, they'll settle out of court, and they'll still, you know, make a lot of money off those, you know, yeah. damages. And you know, when folks have worked in these industries for so long and they have these systems in place for defending their work or holding on to those copyrights and IP, you know, it's one thing I think when folks are starting out and they want to just get their work out there, they want to get their name out there. And so they're just, you know, more than happy to just throw work out for free for anybody. Just grab it, take it, use it. I've seen this a lot with the COVID stuff, you know, the COVID virus. I've seen some really nice, well done renders and, you know, I don't always see the names attached of the people who made those renders when those images get splashed everywhere, right? Yeah. yeah. That's one thing that I'm just kind of like, I raise my eyebrow at. It's like, you say, you know, hey, you know, share it so you get that exposure so people know who you are, but I don't see anybody's name attached to any of these yeah. images. Yeah, I think if you're going to share something, you realistically, you'd probably expect to not get that much credit for it. I mean, like, it would just be like a donation thing. To me, that's like the community effort, you know, giving back to the community. Yeah, so. no, I definitely think that that's part of it is changing and updating our mentality the same way that we're updating our software, right? Mm -hmm. Because I think the market and the way business is done these days is definitely not the same way it was done 20 years ago. And openly sharing content, the, the whole tutorial movement, I mean... All these folks who are just putting out their, you know, their bread and butter or their their secret sauce or what have you online in their YouTube, they're just teaching everything they know. Nobody's holding, you know, that information, you know, hostage anymore, right? And that's tons of people benefited from that. And I think for me, the most important thing is moving forward with a strategy in mind. 
you know, not necessarily just kind of like just doing, well, oh, I'm going to do this to be nice. I mean, it's good to be nice and we should all be nice for sure. But if you are so nice that people see you as a target to be exploited, then that's definitely a problem, I think. But there, there are established strategies. And this, I, I do want to say this, that there's a real benefit to putting out free stuff for people to make use of and to get to know you and to appreciate what you're capable of, right? And to also realize that the person who made this amazing free thing that I'm using, you know, they have expertise that I don't because, you know, I needed this thing. I got it from this person. And obviously there's a lot that that person knew to be able to produce this thing that I am now using. Right. Mm -hmm. So, and yeah, I I think it's, I just have to come back to that word strategy. You know, there's, there's gotta be sort of like an idea here. Like a a great example I like to use is Andrew Kramer who launched the video co-pilot site. So he put out all these free tutorials on how to use After Effects, like every menu item in that software. I mean, that guy is covered, right? And he just put this all out for free. But he was also selling all these plugins and effects packs on his, on his website as well. So it was a marketing tool, yeah. right? Yeah, yeah. And, you know, he also, you know, ended up, I mean, he, the guy's done amazing for himself. He's done, you know, I think he's working on the Star Trek films, the, the recent ones with J.J. Abrams. So yeah. he built up this reputation online and that reputation is what helped him get those gigs. So yep. that is also another benefit and another thing that people want to think about when they're putting out material, whether it be assets or tutorials or what have you, that that is your marketing. You're doing advertising essentially, right? Mm-hmm. Like perfect example would be like, you know, doing scans using, uh, you know, either photo scanners or photogrammetry and, you know, putting those models out there for people to look at and play around with. They can get back to you and let you know like, oh, this didn't perform well. Or like, oh, you know, this part of the scan didn't, didn't get captured too well. And it, it makes you, you know, kind of research and look at what other options you've got to, to refine that. Have you guys done any stuff with uh, photogrammetry? Oh, yeah. Um, yeah. <laughs> uh, we were getting pretty heavy into a lot of stuff. The problem with neurosurgery is you're trying to capture this, this six-inch deep hole that's maybe two inches wide. How do you get light down there and capture it fully? And we were getting to the point where we were even talking about like dissecting it, just cutting it straight down the middle and then photoing it all. Yeah, we got heavily involved with using polarized filters, like everything you can do to get rid of reflections. Mm-hmm. Right. You know, so you use a filter over your camera and you filter over your light source. Talking about polarization with like stereoscopics, it's the same stuff. You're filtering out the reflection of the light. So it doesn't show up. So you just capture the raw color. So the reflection is no longer interfering with your accuracy. So like if you're trying to get a texture map, if you shot like the same photo with different lighting directions and you put them all into Photoshop and you use the lightened transfer mode, you basically are able to eliminate shadows. And that would be kind of a way to get rid of shadows and reflections. You know, so you get basically your albedo. <laughs> Actually, even photogrammetry is coming in a long ways where you just take your cell phone and just shoot some video and just move your cell phone like all around your object and it can generate the model on the fly. So there's a lot of cool stuff that's out there. The dream is to be able to capture surgery three-dimensionally. Yeah, that, that I share that dream as well, my friend. We've been, yeah, we've been experimenting, trying some different stuff. As we're talking about, you know, all the tech and the different software that we've been working with, and then also, you know, your AMI posts, we of course have to jump in a little bit into the AI stuff. Okay. Uh, because I'm so glad you brought this up. This is definitely something, you know, we really need to be aware of in our field because for a long time, people were kind of saying like, oh man, the creative jobs, you know, will be, you know, the last 
refuge for humanity <laughs> against you know the oncoming automation of everything but we're quickly seeing that that's not true at all that you know creative jobs are at just as much of a of a risk as anything else i mean there's software that writes songs that will just you can import some words and it'll just create an image off of the the text alone uh so you know can you tell us a little bit about what you're foreseeing AI affecting our field in the next five to 10 years? Well, I mean, we're already seeing it right now. Like even Photoshop's got tools that are AI based. Like when you go into change the image size and you change the, the sampling mode from automatic or bilinear or whatever, you change it to like detail preserving and it will upsize it and it'll look a little bit better than it would normally. So some of the stuff's already showing up in Adobe software, but it really, I think AI is just gonna help make things a little easier. Tools that do tedious things for you question that I would probably propose is I don't necessarily think an AI is going to like do your job for you. I, I think it's going to be a, more of a question of, okay, if the tools get so sophisticated that they can do things so much faster, they basically like, what if you had to do five times as much work? Because that's how fast your tools work. You no longer have to shade your illustration. The AI can shade it for you. And if you want to shade it in the style of someone specific, you can like literally take their work and drop it in, use that as a source, and it will like match that source. I guess I'm thinking in terms of how do we adjust our mindset to what that might be like if we got to the point where Photoshop can do so many things with just a couple clicks, where it looks good enough that clients are happy with it. But reading the papers, the research and telling the story, that's where probably our biggest time sink goes into is like, what am I going to illustrate? How am I going to show this? How am I going to storyboard this? So I, I guess I see AI as helping with the production side of it, not the pre-production so much. Maybe it can overlay some reference stuff for you. Like if it somehow Google is working on anatomy, you know, they're trying to have an AI learn human anatomy and somehow Photoshop pipes into that. The algorithm is like not three-dimensional models. It's just drawing the 2D imagery. Like it's not like polygons. It's not loading these heavy models. It's just drawing pixels on your screen. It's like streaming the YouTube pixels to your screen versus like downloading the big two-hour video, you know. You can like turn something on and it's like overlaying the anatomy. It's aware that you're looking at this structure upside down and it can like kind of give you a heads up display of like this anatomy and you can turn stuff on. It's just there to be a tool, right? But like, I think with 2D illustration, like our illustrators often use our 3D models as reference and they'll either like kind of trace over them as a starting point. So that already is helping production. So if AI could like further help it by kind of understanding what you're trying to do, like I've illustrated this illustration, but now the client wants me to kind of rotate the camera view, but it's, it's a 2D illustration. Like AI might be able to help you do that. Normally that would probably take, <laughs> you'd have to start the illustration over, I guess, you know? Mm -hmm. So I guess I just think that it's going to speed a lot of things up. I don't think it's going to necessarily make decisions for you, but I guess my concern is like if clients get to the point where they are so impressed with the technology themselves, like I say, our neurosurgeons oftentimes want to learn 3D software, but they don't have time, but an AI tool might be good enough that they could do more themselves. And maybe that's like lightweight work that you'd never get contracted out to do in the first place. I, I just think the volume of illustration is maybe going to increase, or that's what I wonder about. But you're seeing a trend, right? Like the tools are getting faster. You know, you can do things in Photoshop now that you could never do 20 years ago. Like 20 years ago, with Photoshop, you had to do so much stuff by hand using like most minimal paintbrush tools that existed. You didn't have like the brush palettes that you have now. So if you were trying to pan paint a texture, you literally had to like paint dot by dot. You know, <laughs> there wasn't like a brush tool that would have these patterns. You know, like the heel tool, you'd have to like rubber stamp all sorts of stuff to like do what the heel tool does in one click. Oh, yeah. Well, even jumping between 
because I man, I've got such an old version of the Adobe Suite on my my personal computer, and then at work we're on CC. So even something like Content Aware Fill, if yeah. I'm using that on like my CS five point five versus right. CC, I get totally different results. And the newer ones, it's way better. You know, like they don't have mm -hmm. these like weird smears and patches of stuff. You know, like the, yeah, the, the functions work much better. And so you can only imagine that you know this stuff is just going to accelerate. Now I'm wondering. What do you think students who are coming out of the program now or in the near future, what do you think they should be focusing on to kind of prepare for this, the, the, you know, these new changes? Keeping an eye on how fast stuff is changing impacts what you should be learning now. So I would tend to say don't master a software. Like get, get, get yourself to like that 80% point and then move on to another software. Yeah, no, that, that makes sense. So when I was in school, one of my classmates was wanting to be a game developer. He was wanting to make 3D models for a game. And this was when the N64 was in its heyday. I was talking to him and he was saying he's working on low polygon models like you'd expect to see in the N64. And I was like, but the GameCube's coming out. The games that they're working on right now, they're wanting literally 10 times higher polygon count. They're wanting you to model the character's face, not just a picture of it. So it's one thing to work with today's technology because you have to, but don't invest on something that's going to slowly go away. And some people are not the best artists, but they're really good on the scientific side. Maybe they don't need to invest into like spend all time learning how to shade because maybe an AI tool will help you do that and get you to a point where it is good enough for you to make high quality work and you can focus on the science more. So I, I guess I would just say focus on the thing that you are the most interested in. I'm also curious about not not just like the uh, the nitty gritty, you know, skills that you would put down on the resume, but also some of the soft skills, people skills, you know, communication, team management, time management, this kind of stuff, because you're, you're someone who's coming from this incredible experience of, you know, starting up, you know, a group. I mean, you were, you were there on the ground floor, right? At Barrow. And, you know, over time you've, you've seen these developments, you've kind of figured out, you know, what is the good stuff to integrate? You know, what stuff do you guys have to, you know, kind of put some work into to develop more? I'm wondering if you could maybe speak a little bit about like your mentality about like learning and, and also like interacting with folks, like some, what are some of your, I, I think of like, maybe like a mantra, almost like I say to myself, like one of the things I always try to tell myself is like, help create opportunities for other people. Like that's one thing I think is like really helpful kind of like mentality or philosophy to have. What are some like personal philosophies you've had that, that have helped you in your career? So everything we do in our field is to serve others. You're working with a client, you're trying to help them show the thing that they're trying to show. When you're working with a team also, like I, I think uh, on my personal phone calendar, like every Monday I've got a little reminder, it just says about others. <laughs> and it's just because it's so easy to get wrapped up in yourself and like, what do I got to do this week? What am I working on? What are my deadlines? In my opinion, I think one of the things that makes a good place to work is that people care about you. They care about your workload. They care about how you're completing problems. If not immediately, maybe in the long term, maybe you could help them in some way. So things like that. Yeah, I like that, man. That's I think that's a really good you know mentality to have. Through the years that you've been working in professionally in the field, how has the work that you've been doing changed your view of the world? Working at a hospital, you're working with doctors and you get used to producing the visuals for the doctors and you're focused on that. And sometimes you lose sight of the purpose of it, right? Is to the surgeons can do surgery and save people's lives. And so I think one of the things that stood out to me was uh, one of the doctors, we were walking with him in the hallway and a patient 
was just there in the hallway and broke down in tears and was crying and saying, he saved my baby's life. I don't know, it just, it, it sticks with me. Like it just kind of refocuses your mission. You know, like I'm, I'm here to help this person save lives. That's, that's what really stuck to me. So, I, you know, I get, obviously I'm wrapped up in technology and the art, all the production and all this stuff. And, but I guess it all comes back down to that. Like that, that's why I'm here. You know? <laughs> like we're here to help save lives. And so right on, that's, man. that's how I see it. <laughs> that's awesome. I really like how you mention, you know, being conscious of the amount of time that yourself and your coworkers are putting into the office, you know, trying to avoid those late nights if possible. You know, what kind of tips might you have for achieving that work-life balance? Oh, uh, so I'm, I'm really guilty of breaking these rules, you know, but like, uh, I have a reminder that goes off four times to say, go home, <laughs> go home. Cause I just, I get wrapped up in what I'm doing and I have to remind myself, like I have to go home with my wife. You know? <laughs> uh, I just, I get really focused on something and I just, I got to finish this thing. I can't let it go until I'm done with it, but then I'm going to be here until like late night. So I, you just got to like wrap it up and go home. I don't know if I have like a silver bullet for it. It's just like, it needs to be a priority. We can't let ourselves get burned out. Right on. Yeah, that, yeah, that totally makes sense. So I have kind of a fun question for you. What's something you've learned about learning that's made you a better learner? For me, like writing about stuff, documenting stuff. Like when I create a new procedure and because I'm dealing with a lot of computers and like how these computers are set up, I need to document that. And so just writing about it, it's kind of like teaching it, helps you learn it. So if you're writing about it, it, I have to get down to the specifics of why is it that way? Or why am I doing it that way? The other thing too is like, I've watched a lot of YouTube videos and I speed everything up like 1.5, 1.75 speed. Yep. Oh, turn, yeah, the, turn the subtitles on. And yeah, you just burn through stuff. I used to watch some movies like that. You know, like, <laughs> <laughs> movies that I kind of half wanted to watch, but not invest a full two hours. You know? <laughs> When I was in school, actually, our whole 3D course is off of a book. And I would ask the professor, like, what are we doing next class? And he would kind of tell you, well, we're going to cover this. I'd read up ahead so I could just preview the information. So I was just ready to learn it. So I feel like learning is a two-stage thing. Well, I guess it's three-stage. Get the general concept, get the specifics, and then teach it. <laughs> so right there was a neurosurgeon that said, first you learn it, and then you teach it. And that's how you learn. <laughs> so. Right on. Yeah, I, our surgeon, Paul Gregg, he used to have this thing he'd say to all the the residents and the fellows, as he said, if you want to learn a surgery, you got to see one, do one, teach one. So do you have any um, like favorite books, anything you've read or resources? One of my favorite books is a book by David Marquette called Turn the Ship Around. Uh, he, oh, was a, okay. he was a submarine captain. It's a true story about how a submarine that was in basically last place in terms of like mission readiness and how he took it from going from last place to first place, not just first place, but redefining like Navy procedures. And the main concept of the book is letting people make decisions, like uh, trusting people to make decisions, like putting the responsibility on them and letting them own it. So the whole thing was that he was supposed to be captain of a, of a different type of submarine and he got last minute transferred to this other submarine. And so he didn't know the systems as well. He had to rely on the crew. So he'd say like, go to one third speed going this way and then nothing would happen. He said, why aren't we moving? And he said, there is no one third speed on this submarine. So, mm. well, can't you figure this out and help me get what I'm trying to get at? Wow, no, I, I like that. I, I totally dig that, man. That's awesome. Uh, are, are you familiar with Jocko Willink at all by any chance? I don't think I am. Okay, he's, you, would, you would like this guy. So he's a Navy SEAL who he's written a couple books. One of them is Extreme Ownership. Oh, I've watched some of his videos. Yeah. 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 He yeah, definitely that, uh, touts that same philosophy um, 
And I've, I've been trying, that's probably one of the things that's had the, one of the biggest positive impacts on my career is that idea of extreme ownership. Mm-hmm. You just take, take ownership of everything, anything that's in your vicinity that goes wrong, just assume you were at fault, you know, even though of course, of course it's not true, but the idea is that you, by assuming blame every single time, by taking on the responsibility, you empower yourself to create the solution. Right. One of the talks that I saw him give was something went wrong and like everyone on that Marine squad took responsibility for what went wrong. He was in charge of the whole squad and he was going to be relieved. But because he took ownership of everything, it builds trust. You're not blaming people for mistakes. and It's not a leadership quality. So yeah, right on, man. Now, let me ask you this. What do you think is the best case scenario for the future of the field in, say, five, 10 years? Obviously, with COVID, everyone has put a lot of value into visualization and explaining things. And I've heard from multiple people that they've had more work now than they've ever had in their life. In my mind, the people that are paying the bills, that are paying for the content, they're the ones who are driving the industry in terms of allowing us to have a, a livelihood. So best case scenario is the field is even better, that salaries go up, you know, that sort of thing, <laughs> that there's a bigger demand for it. Who, who are some other artists whose work you really like, you know, whether they be within the field or just other CG artists? Are there any folks that you, you really like? I get inspired by different things. And like one of the stories that really inspires me is how anyone's familiar with the, the SR-71, how that plane came to be. Everything involved in making that plane was brand new. The engines, the avionics, the fuel, everything about, they had to kind of wipe the slate clean and start from the drawing board because like all the stuff that they'd done up until that point didn't matter anymore. They were going somewhere new. For me, that's inspiring. Where everything is new. How do we solve this brand new problem that hasn't been solved before? And with medical illustration, I think that's the same way. You're solving a thing that hasn't been taught before. It's a new type of medical procedure or a new science, a new solution to the problem. So Cool, man. Really cool. So, so what are you looking forward to in the near future? Like what's coming up uh, next couple months or so that like you're really excited about? I've got to focus on some substance designer stuff. I just have a lot of assets that we got to make. I'm involved in some long-term projects that are a couple years out. We're building new models and new materials and textures. Anything that's procedural, that's a reusable asset, some stuff with Houdini. We've been using Houdini kind of on and off for like six years, just for various projects. It's kind of like when Maya can't do something, Houdini can. People doing molecular work should really look into Houdini, but it's got a steep learning curve. So uh, now where's the best place to view the work you guys have done at Barrow? You know, you mentioned Peter Lawrence has a really popular Instagram page. So a lot of our medical illustrations are regularly posted there. You know, the Barrow website, it changes a lot. And so it's hard to always say like where, because there's stuff coming from all sorts of sources. Mm-hmm. Uh, so Barrow has every Friday, uh, they call them grand neurosurgical rounds. And those are presentations that are freely available to the public. We have our doctors that are present there and we have outside doctors who present, but a lot of our content is in those presentations oftentimes. Oh, so, cool. um, but I don't have a, a link off the top of my head, but it's just neurosurgical grand rounds. I think it's a barrelneuro.org. It's the website. Okay. Oh, I'll definitely look for that. And I, man, out of all the stuff that you do, what do you enjoy the most? I like, uh, I like making new things possible. That's where I get the most reward is when something previously couldn't be done, like even if it's just rendering faster or just a new sort of flexibility or a new technique or tool. I like building something that can then be improved on. And, you know, as I'm driving into work, I'm thinking about how to improve on something. So I guess I just like doing something new. Right on, man. Yeah, man. Thanks so much for being game. Uh, oh, yeah. Oh, thanks. Thank you. <laughs> and a big thanks to you as well for listening. I hope you enjoyed this deep dive into some of the tech considerations of 3D medical animation. 
If you'd like to see some of the work that Michael is involved with at Barrow, I've included some links in the show notes for the Barrow Neurological Institute, their Grand Rounds, uh, their Instagram account, and the Instagram account of Peter Lawrence that Michael mentioned. If you're listening to this episode near its release date, the Association of Medical Illustrators annual meeting just took place on July 20th through the 30th of 2021. The meeting was held virtually this year. We're hoping to return to the in-person format next year, making sure, of course, that it's safe to do so. But I thought the AMI did a great job with the virtual format. If you go to meetings.ami.org slash 2021, check that out and see what's on the schedule. You'll get a great sense of the uh, conference, all the speakers. And if you'd like to check out the video recordings of any of the talks, check out the AMI's account on Vimeo. That's vimeo.com slash A-M-I-D-O-T-O-R-G. And the session recordings are located there. I don't think they have the tech talks included there, but some of those will be made available on YouTube down the line. For example, I did a presentation on photogrammetry that can be found on YouTube or go to tvasurge.ca and you'll find it in the blog post for July 30th, 2021. So thanks again for listening. I've got some really exciting new episodes coming up, so stay tuned. Until next time, stay safe and stay healthy.